0: Buenos días.
1: Good morning, Daniel. I'll speak in my native language. Yeah,
0: I was thinking of going full Spanish there for a second, but you would have totally—I would have alienated our entire audience. So, and your co-host and my co-host. I'm just you know blazing trails here on market scale uh, and on business casual. So, sorry about it. Perdóname. (laughs) Nothing to apologize for, and I don't know what you said. (laughs) Hello everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. I'm
1: your other host, Tyler Kern. It's August 28th,
0: Daniel. It sure is. What
1: happened to August?
0: It's honestly crazy. I was sitting uh, in the office, kind of looking out at the view yesterday. Rainy, dark, gloomy. Went out for lunch. It was kind of cool. You know, it was, I don't know, 80s maybe, high 80s. I was like... Wow, we really reached the end of summer. We are finally getting into that like post-summer, cool, rainy, kind of, I-, I don't know, fall is inching closer, and it's
1: making me excited. It is a false start, because you know it's going to be 100 degrees in the middle of October. Yeah, I know. Still. It's just not, I don't know. I'm I'm. You being know optimistic. Better. I'm you being, know better. I do, I do. We all do. We all do. Well, it is August 28th, as I mentioned. The Dow opens up this morning, down 120 points. The Nasdaq down 26 points. Price of oil is $55.73 a barrel, Daniel. Uh, we have a big show coming up today.
0: Yeah, we have a lot of great conversations. We're going to be chatting AI and retail and yes. breaking down some of the big players that are um, introducing AI into their warehouses, into their back ends and kind of getting a feel for how that might impact the future of retail. We're also going to be chatting Uber's administrative expansion, which is going to be right in our backyard here in uh, in Dallas, Texas. It sure is. It's going to be a good time. Yes. We're also going to be chatting mm, Popeye's chicken sandwiches. We had to talk about it at some point. We had to. It's just a little too timely, and... I don't know. The, the virality is there. It is there. It's there, so we got to talk on it, and they're tasty sandwiches, so I will vouch have for you them. Have you had one? Uh, I did have one, yes. What?
1: You're like the only person that I know because nobody else can go and
0: get them. It was just a sandwich at the end of the day, but I think the hype behind it made me enjoy it more. It's like, yeah,
1: I got my sandwich. You know what I mean? Should we save it, or, or do you want to tell us? <laughs> what, is it better or worse than Chick-fil-A?
0: Um, we'll save it. We'll let everyone simmer on it and just postulate for themselves whether or not it was better than a Chick-fil-A Sammy.
1: Interesting. Well, I've heard that there are certain places where you can't get it until October. So you're just going to, it's just a great big tease for everybody.
0: Yeah. I mean, we're going to be talking the marketing revenue that Popeye's got from that whole Twitter feud. We're going to be chatting uh, why that's so important and what other businesses can get out of social virality and getting uh, getting influencers, getting individuals excited about your product. Yeah. We're going to break that down soon. Before we do, we've got some really cool design news. Um, the largest rooftop farm in the world is opening in Paris next year. Interesting. Yeah. So this is a, a pretty interesting uh, building management and architecture and design story here, Um uh, the previous record was held uh, in the States, about like 56, 60,000 sure. square feet. This blows it out of the water. We're talking 150,000 square feet wow. of rooftop farming and gardening. It's going to grow more than 2,000 pounds of fruits and vegetables every day, mm-hmm. day during high season. Um, and it's going to be vertical farming. So they're going to be using aeroponic farming, no soil. They're going to be using liquid nutrients grown in that kind of misty air environment. Um, It's kind of the future of urban farming. It's exciting to see. And it's a giant project. So it's not like a little chic niche thing. It is going to be, I think, a staple of why people go and visit Paris. I mean, they are going to have the largest rooftop garden in the world. So I wanted to get some thoughts on this. We've got someone in the studio I'm really excited to introduce. We've got Dave Shupman, Senior Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Fortis Warranty, a roofing warranty company. Great to have you on, Dave. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Absolutely. So what are your initial thoughts on this giant rooftop garden and farm?
2: I, I, I think it's great. I, I think, you know... You know, vegetative roofing really got its start in Europe, um, you know, came over to the States. We uh, really blew it up for a lot of other reasons with, you know, water retention issues, uh, reducing urban heat island effect. You know, uh, in, in Europe, they've, they've really gone to another level with it. And as the technology's improved, um, as they figure out how to, you know, deal with the weight loads on these buildings, uh, I, I think it's fantastic what they're able to do with the vegetative and really making it more than just something nice to look at, but making an effective use of the, the land for for the tenants around it.
0: That's why I really like it is that repurposing of the land that was then lost by putting that building there, right? It's almost like just elevating the ground up a little bit and keeping some of that vegetation, keeping area for wildlife to interact, for people to enjoy greenery in their day-to-day life. I mean, from just an aesthetic perspective, I really like it. Um, But from just a, a functionality perspective, I'm always interested, how are you seeing buildings that install these green roofs manage both that eco-vision of the building, right? Uh, whether it's bringing sustainability, energy conservation, or access to um, fresh plants and produce, how are they balancing that eco-vision with the safety promise of obviously a functioning roof, right? Making it a functional, not leaky, not, I don't know, compromised in any way roof. Yeah, no, I, it, it, that's been the balance for sure.
2: You've got safety, making sure if you've got firemen up on the roof, how they can access the building. Uh, you've got performance of the of the system itself, and you know the development of much better waterproofing materials uh, that are being installed on the substrates. You know, figuring out the drainage mats and the soil mediums that go into the vegetated roofs. I mean, all of that technology has really come up to make, you know, uh, a, m- a more efficient use of that space. Uh, you know, sustainability is is great. Uh, um, y- the, the products that we're using today, um, much more than ever, are lasting longer. And yeah. so you're able to put these you know, giant uh, you know, farms on top of these systems without them breaking down every 10, 15 years.
0: And the fact that they're going soilless uh, and it's aeroponic farming, is that for a particular reason? Does soil introduce any kind of warranty issues with these roofs and extra problems that are difficult to man- maintain and manage?
2: Well, it, it does. I mean, there's, and like anything else, there's weeds that get into it, but it also gets very heavy when it's when, when it gets wet. Mm. And so then you have to manage these incredible building loads. And sometimes, you know, it's expensive enough to put the vegetative roof on there. And then all of a sudden you're putting all of the reinforcements into the building right. to hold something like that. It, it makes it cost prohibitive.
1: Yeah, for sure. Do you see this becoming kind of a wider trend uh, here in the United States moving forward? Or is this maybe a a little bit of a flash in the pan or or something like that? Do you see this being a bigger deal as kind of urban migration continues to be a bigger and bigger deal?
2: I think it's the next step in the evolution. Like I Mm -hmm. mentioned, it, it really started in Europe and it started as vegetated roofs and they did them for things like, um, you know, making uh, uh, air less polluted, sure. uh, you know, cooling off the environments, uh, you know, helping with stormwater management where it's holding that water and releasing it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's this is the next step as, as we've gotten more excited about green roofs. Uh, you know, we formed the United States Green Building Council all not that long ago. Uh, you know, we started putting green roof standards in, safety standards in for now people are using it for parks, they're enjoying it, uh, they're, they're seeing how the value of properties are raising because they have that, and now I think w- with all that evolution, I think the next step here is in these urban environments to, to, to put something like a, a vegetative farm in there, yeah.
0: Last thing here, uh, have you worked with any clients or have you seen any projects locally or here in the States that have really stood out to you as, oh, this is a successful way to implement a green roof in the United States?
2: Uh, Yeah, I uh, have a fair amount of experience installing uh, green roofs. Nice, you know, working with horticulturists, picking out the right types of plant life that goes in there. Very cool. Figuring out the right kind of design, um, how much moisture you want to retain and drip into the system versus release. Um, so, so, yeah, we've got a fair amount of, of uh, experience with that. One of the things that we're doing at, at, at Fortis is um, one of the big concerns has always been how do you warrant the materials underneath there? Everyone's afraid of the overburden that's on top of them. And so right. we've been coming out with new ways at Fortis of, um, you know, warranting those systems and, and giving the
0: owner as well as the manufacturer some assurance that it's going to perform. For sure. Well, yeah, because clearly with anything like this that still has a sense of newness to it, you want the structural integrity of that roof and the standards that have been put out there by companies like Fortis to persist and to not lose any of that structural integrity just for the aesthetic value. So... I'm glad that the, the mentality is there, obviously, and that people are trying to find that balance because the eco-vision of it is very important, too.
2: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Business Casual this morning. Always great getting to chat. And we'll have to bring you back on to chat more about green roofs and uh, maybe break down a particular project.
2: Sounds great. Appreciate you guys having me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. All right, T. Next subject here, we're chatting AI and retail which is pretty exciting stuff. We certainly are. So, AI in general is, I think, creating larger gaps in competition Mm -hmm. for the future of retail and the future of a lot of other industries. Um, You know, you're you're seeing AI elevate companies, create better efficiencies, um, and really change the game, especially for the big players. And this is no different in ai or excuse me in retail uh, juniper research found that global spending on ai is set to reach 7.3 billion wow. by 2022 so this is just ai in general okay. it's <laughs> it's popular clearly businesses want to invest mm-hmm. um And so you might be thinking, how might AI be used in retail in an effective way? How is it already being used in retail in an effective way? And I want to play a quick clip here with H2O.AI's Sri Ambati. He's their CEO. They're one of the leading um, AI democratization platforms out there. And he gave some thoughts on CNBC on uh, basically where AI will be useful in retail and how it's already useful. So 10,000 products go on sale for Labor Day weekend coming up. And you want to know how to price them, and how to change them, how to personalize sales for every one of the customers, consumers. And I think uh, in in this fast, like competitive markets, global markets, you want to price them well, you want to place them correctly. Um, And the supply chain, uh, we are are optimizing supply chains for perishables as well as goods. We are are optimizing uh, bonds, pricing of bonds, especially corporate bonds. You want liquidity, uh, and you want to chase that
1: liquidity with the right pricing.
0: I like what he brought up there about the pricing. It's, right. it's cool that we're seeing AI come in and in a predictive way be able to adjust pricing for products to match consumer demand, to match the supply, to match kind of the, the global supply chain mm-hmm. of that product and of competitors' products. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point of view. And um, I remember when uh, Jerry Mecca was here a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he talked to us. He was the uh, vice president of IT and things like that at uh, Dr. Pepper Snapple uh, for a long time, a guy that was really well-connected and uh, knew a lot about just the growth of AI in that retail-type space. And one of the things he talked about was using AI for predictive ordering, right? So knowing what a company needed ahead of time based on what they've done seasonally over the last several years, being able to anticipate needs, that way you're more efficient, that way you're you're able to meet demand quicker, easier, and hopefully cheaper, you know, and and that sort of thing. So uh, that, to me, is what stands out about where AI might be going in retail, is helping people be smarter on the back end to then meet demand on the front end, if that makes sense. Well, it's
0: just incredibly practical. Right. um, Compared to, I think, some of the AI projects we see in other industries that often retain that kind of sci-fi flavor of Mm -hmm. AI, that try to go for the big projects, the exciting, you know, oh, we're going to cure cancer with our AI. It's like, I mean, okay, yes, that'd be great, but (laughs) we did a whole segment on that previously, and that was clearly a failure. It didn't really work out. What we see here is in retail... They're really finding ways to bring AI into the back-end process, like you said, Mm -hmm. warehouse management, ordering, uh, stocking, pricing, all these things that affect the bottom line and make their operations more efficient. And we're seeing big players like Walmart, like Target, have their own unique versions of AI integration. So, for example, Walmart is using AI for automated shipment unloading technology Mm -hmm. to make the unloading process faster. Yeah. They're using robots to clean, they're using robots to restock shelves, and they're using AI-powered cameras to monitor theft at self-checkout counters. So a lot of bottom line affecting processes there from theft to warehouse management. At Target, you're actually seeing them use AI to help dictate employee tasks. So instead of necessarily having a manager have to change up the, I guess, flow of productivity for the day... There might be some tasks that are automated Mm -hmm. that the AI can tell, okay, we need to reprioritize who works on what right right now and kind of shift your – here's your schedule for the day. You need to be working on this right now. AI doing that instead of waiting for the human response there. Pretty interesting. They're also using AI to improve uh, shipment. They're also using AI – let's see here – to improve – Backroom automation to manage supply chain operations. I Mm -hmm. mean, all in all, it's pretty amazing stuff what they're doing. And it is effective. You're seeing it boost them in unexpected ways. In Q2, they both had unexpected growth due in some part to AI powering those operational efficiencies. So Walmart, you saw they had a 2.8% growth in same store sales in Q2. Target had a 3.4% growth in comparable sales, and both of them said this was pretty unexpected. This is exceeded expectations, this is exciting news, and I don't think the effect of the AI can be discounted here. Um, I I really think it's a sign that the small players need to start thinking, how can we make our processes more efficient, because the big players are going to start mastering this technology soon.
1: Absolutely. Efficiency means more money, which means higher profits. Right. Which means your
0: employees better. Exactly, it means better aesthetics in your store. It means reinvesting that into product development and research. I mean, all that kind of bottom line, uh, e- efficientizing. God, sure. that's not a word, but <laughs> y- you know what I'm saying. The efficiency of of raising that bottom line is always great. Absolutely. And so, I think we're seeing AI do that. We're gonna have to stay plugged in as more and more of that um, technology makes its way into larger players in retail so yeah we'll have to keep chatting on it later all right we're going to take a quick 30 second break and then we are going to do a quick little conversation here on uber's expansion it's going to be a good time are you tired of all job postings looking the same and want to find a way to help your stand out get yourself a market scale job cast Jobcasts are a compelling piece of recruitment content that differentiate your job post above all the others. What is a Jobcast, you might ask? They're a short podcast that gets to the heart of what makes your company unique and stand out in a world full of copycats and cheap knockoffs. Once produced, the Jobcast can be added to your job posting and put on your website. Stop getting lost in the job board shuffle and start standing out with a market-scale Jobcast. What we're talking about here today is basically Dallas, Texas is getting a big gig economy player in its backyard. Uber, the one and only, is opening a new administrative hub in Dallas right in the heart of Deep Ellum, which is our historic district here in Dallas, and that is set to bring along 3,000 new jobs with it. People are very excited about this expansion. I wanted to get some thoughts on this from a rideshare expert. So here to give his thoughts on this expansion is Sergio Avedian. He's a senior contributor for The Rideshare Guy. He's also a retired Wall Street professional with 18 years of experience under his belt and an expert on the business back ends of the rideshare industry. Sergio, great to have you on. How are you doing today?
3: Good morning. I'm fine. How are you guys?
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. So this is a pretty exciting move for the people of Dallas. Um... People are excited about those jobs, but there was also a $24 million incentive package from state officials to get Uber to want to open up their administrative hub here. Besides all of that, though, why do you think Dallas was on their purview in the first place for an administrative expansion?
3: Well, as per Uber, um, I think expansion is something that's been uh, on the front page since they started. Um Uber is not a small corporation, obviously. They have about 26,000 employees globally. So, um, you know, expansion is always uh, important for them. Uh, But I think one of the major reasons is that um, Dallas, Texas area, obviously, offers uh, a very business-friendly structure. And also the talent pool that exists in that area, I think, is one of the key uh, factors for Uber to move into
1: the area. We've heard some uh, maybe some concern about Uber recently, just uh, whether it's their stock price or the leadership at the top. Should people in Dallas be excited about Uber coming to Dallas and, and you know, is this a positive development for the city?
3: Well, obviously it is. and and to remind you, this is obviously not the first uh, corporation that's moving into the area right. through expansion or moving their headquarters. This has been going on since 2014, basically, when Toyota moved in with a $40 million grant from the government um, to uh, move their hub to to the Dallas area. So, uh, you know, the business-friendly aspect of the state and the city especially has a lot to do with this.
0: And then is this administrative expansion telling of any particular growth at Uber? Uh, Do you think this is reflective of... Any larger initiatives from the uh, rideshare company?
3: Uh, not necessarily. I mean, about a month ago, I'm sure you read in the news that uh, there was uh, some major changes uh, as far as their employees are concerned. They let right. go of 400 of their marketing employees. Um, also, their chief operating officer and chief marketing officer um, resigned, or let's say, you know, they had a they had a shift up top in the C-suite. Um, their CEO wanted to be more hands-on and then didn't think those positions were necessary. So on one hand, they're laying off 400 people, and on the other hand, they're hiring 3,000 people. I mean, overall, the 3,000 uh, new employees aren't going to add about 8 to 9% to the overall total of the employee count. So yes, yes obviously it's important, but then uh, uh, it's something that also they probably have done due to costs. Um, obviously, where their headquarters are in San Francisco, it's very expensive. And uh, with the subsidies that they're getting, I think uh, it was, it's a pretty good deal for both sides.
0: And I mean, the company has yet to turn a profit. Um, in Q1 of 2019, they lost a billion dollars, which is a lot of money. Uh, so, you know, clearly they're still, f- I mean, they're growing, but a lot of experts have said it's going to take several years before Uber turns a profit. Um, Why do you think this generally hasn't curbed that kind of growth? And do you think this move to Dallas uh, might be a step in the right direction to get them closer to profitability?
3: I doubt it. I I don't think profitability is as simple as as moving headquarters or expansion uh, in employee count, uh, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, There are very important fundamental reasons for uber not to turn a profit um i don't think it's, it's their employees i think it's their business model or sure. the lack of it i'm not even sure if they have a business model um so to me the, the most important thing is i mean look uber is a fantastic service there are three groups of people who have benefited so far from this um the top executives obviously the early venture capitalists who invested in the company who got about a ten thousand percent return on their money and the passenger, uh, all three are basically living in a subsidized fantasy land. As long as the subsidized last, Uber is not going to make money and because they're underpricing the service that they're providing. So I, I look at it, uh, as, you know, I put out a simple analogy for this. I mean, I have a 50-cent burger that the consumer is willing to pay for, but I'm going to sell it for a nickel and expect to turn a profit by just growing top-line. Top-line growth may never reflect itself on the bottom line and that's what's been happening and when you said you know the billion dollar loss for the first quarter where the second quarter was 5.2 billion dollar loss obviously on Wall Street we call that a kitchen sink quarter they took all the expenses related to their IPO and dumped it in there Uh, but as far as clean numbers you know they they still managed to lose 1.3 billion dollars so you know billion dollars every quarter loss I mean it shows The weakness of the business model if there is one and and to be perfectly honest with you obviously they just want to increase top line right and they want to increase ridership well they have done that you know they have done a great job doing that however to make money out of it um it's completely another story and they haven't done it and i don't think they're going to with, with with the
0: way they're going well sergio we've got some big news uh, coming through in California for the future of the gig economy. We're going to have to bring you back on to chat about that in the future. Um, but till then, thank you for joining us on Business Casual. It's always a pleasure getting to chat.
3: Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again.
0: Alrighty, Mr. Tyler. We're going to listen from Mr. Jeff Short here now. We've got the short list ready to go.
4: You just made the list. A short list. Mm,
0: my favorite stinger. All right, everyone. Here are your... Headlines for the day, enjoy.
4: Hi everybody, I'm Jeffrey Short and this is The Short List for Wednesday, August 28th. The internet of things has allowed people to be more efficient in their routines for years and businesses are increasingly implementing the technology into their own. Industrial conglomerate Honeywell announced it is adding more automation, cybersecurity and visualization tools to its Forge for Buildings IoT platform. Here's CNBC reporter Morgan Brennan on the company's strategy. So Whether it's connected warehouses, connected buildings and plants, that's part of this big bet as Honeywell looks to become a software industrial company. Now, some of that is this automation, uh, these automation products, the software portfolio. The other half, though, is connected enterprise or Honeywell's industrial Internet of Things offerings and platform. Honeywell CEO Darius Adamczyk told CNBC the company is also investing in robotics, among other smart tech. Another American institution, Kentucky Fried Chicken, is also implementing the latest innovations in its field, at least for now. The company began testing plant-based chicken yesterday through a partnership with Beyond Meat. The meatless nuggets and wings are available at just one KFC location in Atlanta right now, but if tests go well, the new menu item could be at a brick-and-mortar near you soon. Yahoo Finance reports that the product contains about 20 ingredients, with its core component being a pea-based protein. That's what's happening in the world of B2B today. I'm Market MarketScale Digital Editor, Jeffrey Short. You just made the list! A short list. Gotta
0: love that, Gotta love that short list. Gotta love the short list. Mm. Well, he ended his short list by chatting chicken. We're going to be chatting chicken here to close out the show as well.
1: Oh, It's going to make me hungry, and it's yeah. still so early in the morning. I know,
0: I'm sorry, but I couldn't ignore this really fun story. There was some chicken sandwich craziness if you missed out. Um, This is kind of a social media story, but the tangible effects went way beyond social media. So if you weren't plugged into this, we thought it was important to let you know there was a chicken sandwich war and Popeye's won. So uh, the Popeye's chicken sandwich went viral recently. Um, It was a fresh sandwich I believe that went up on the national menu on August 12th. So it it was a new product they were launching. They're well known for their spicy and mild tenders, but not necessarily for a sandwich. They decided to roll one out that had the buttered bun, the pickles. It was very reminiscent of the Chick-fil-A buttered bun pickle mm-hmm. slab of chicken sandwich. And there was a little back and forth feud with Chick-fil-A over Twitter that sparked this chicken sandwich war. You know, Twitter saying theirs was better. Popeye saying theirs theirs was better. Wendy's trying to chime in, but Wendy's chicken sandwich is absolutely irrelevant. So no (laughs) one chimed in to support Wendy's there. Everyone clowned Wendy's. Wendy's. I know. R.I.P.
1: Wendy's clowns on Twitter.
0: Wendy's has a good brand on Twitter, but this was just not their fight. This Mm -hmm. was not their fight. So what were the effects of this Twitter war? Well. Popeyes picked up 25,000 new Twitter followers in one day. Wow. Chick-fil-A picked up 10,000, but Popeyes picked up 25,000. And when the feud really went viral, which was August 20th and 21st, according to analysis from Placer.ai, traffic to Popeyes' physical locations nationwide went up 70, excuse me 67.6% and 103.3% respectively those two days. So it went up... on the 20th, and then it went up 103% on the 21st compared to the chain's summer averages from the June 1st through August 21st range. Mm -hmm. So they got a tangible boost from this Twitter war in store. People wanted to try that sandwich. And according to Apex Marketing Group, an estimated $23 million were earned in equivalent ad value across digital, print, social, TV, and radio in just 11 days for Popeyes.
1: That's unbelievable. Incredible. It's the definition of earned media, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. I just really wanted to point this story out because all these Twitter feuds, they're always goofy and you can write them off. It's like, all right, these are just, you know, back away, brand, and, you know, like, stay away from my content. But at the end of the day, when it resonates with a community, you see that impact in your sales. Absolutely. Um, you know, this was – there's a particular community on Twitter, often self-branded Black Twitter, um, that's just a lot of Black influencers, um, activists, just casual Twitter users that engage in, you know, conversation within their community. This blew up within that community, spread out to a larger sect of Twitter, became viral. Mm -hmm. And this is just proof that if your product speaks to a community, if your branding speaks to a community and you engage your community in the right way, the kind of brand ambassadors and the kind of like influencer-led marketing that you can create around
1: this is invaluable. Right. No, absolutely. That's... That's one hundred percent correct, and I think that uh, one of the big things when when it comes to this is seeing how this affects and what this does for Chick Fil A or excuse me uh, Popeyes in the future. Can they continue to grow and build on this earned media? Is it just going to be a flash in the pan, or can they continue to grow from this? That's what I'm excited to see. Yeah,
0: well, I mean Popeyes, um, I believe is I saw a ranking somewhere. It was like twenty first, twenty second, twentieth something in in fast food chains. Sure. So I mean they're. Definitely, like, in the top players, but they're never regarded as, like, one of the biggest. You know, they're the top five. They're competing against McDonald's and everything. And I think it's because, I mean, you know, the food is a little more niche Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to fast food, but it's delicious. (laughs) I'm going to vouch for Popeye's every day. Sure. And this kind of branding, playing with your social media to engage in you know friendly competition to mm-hmm. engage your community to get people excited about your product it proves that that works and it proves that when your social media strategy comes off at least as authentic doesn't have to be authentic but if it comes off as authentic right. people will buy into it and people will go to your store and buy your product and if you don't have a physical store then they'll engage with your product uh, you know through e-commerce whatever it might be the effects are tangible and i don't think they can
1: be understated I think you're absolutely right. And uh, like I said, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens for Popeyes in the future. I need to go get one of the sandwiches for yeah. Crying Out Loud uh, because I just haven't had a chance to yet.
0: And I guess I have to give my ranking.
1: Yeah. Um, Better or worse than Chick-fil-A?
0: I don't know. I I mean, it, it's good. I just think they're different flavors. You know, your mm-hmm. Chick-fil-A breading is just so unique. Yeah. Um, and it's got kind of like a sweetness to it. The Popeyes one tastes like Popeye's chicken, but in sandwich form, and so, I don't know. I go to each establishment when I'm craving a different kind of chicken, Okay. so I don't think there's a winner
1: here. I mean, Popeye's
0: won, yes, Popeye's won the feud, but the sandwich war itself, I think it's kind of a wash. I
1: think it's a tie. Well, Chick-fil-A had had such a monopoly on the market for so long, it felt like, where it was just them kind of in the world of chicken sandwiches, so I'm excited to see see what it does to have Popeye's in the game as well. Yeah,
0: same. Well, and We'll break this down maybe another time, but the operational efficiencies were not there for Popeye. Right, pa- pa- Popeye the Sailor. No, they were for Popeye- not quite
1: ready for uh, how much this blew up.
0: Yeah, it was. Um, it was tough managing it for the employees, managing having enough chicken sandwiches. They really did not expect this to blow up like it did. So, hey, if you've got a good branding rollout for your product, you better have the product because people are going to buy it.
1: Be prepared on the back end for, uh, for that explosion.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to Biz Cash this morning. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin. I'm your other host, Tyler Kern. All right, and we'll see you Friday 8 a.m. Central. Peace.
3: Thank you